You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode of Plenary Session, we're going to talk about a few things. First, we're going to talk about a very interesting commentary written in Nature Views Clinical Oncology by Chris Booth and Alan Detsky entitled, Why Patients Receive Treatments That Are Minimally Effective. It was published at the end of last month, and uh, I'm going to take you through some of the arguments used in this wonderful commentary. Next, we're going to talk about Checkmate 331, which is a randomized phase 3 clinical trial of Obdivo versus chemotherapy in patients with previously treated or relapsed small cell lung cancer. Now, many of you may know, if you're an avid listener of this podcast, that we discussed the approval for nivolumab in this exact setting in episode 3, where we discussed the approval based on uncontrolled data that was 2 years old. Now, we're going to follow up just couple months later with the phase three trial results. Finally, we're going to have an interview with Dr. Adam Obley. Adam was the guest of the first podcast, but as we warned at the time, it wasn't the best interview. I interrupted him quite frequently, so I brought him back to explain himself. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. First up, why patients receive treatments that are minimally effective, a commentary by Christopher Booth and Alan Detsky. This is a very interesting commentary where I think in order to really understand it, I think we have to at least agree at the outset um, that there is some truth uh, to this article. Um, Those of us who practice medical oncology, we know that so often when our therapies are administered under ideal circumstances, they fail to offer benefits that we would hope or want. The benefits are less than that. They're modest, marginal, or minimal benefits under ideal circumstances. And yet so often in oncology, we're confronted with circumstances that are not ideal. Patients who may be older with multiple comorbidities, and now you take a drug that has real toxicity and a small benefit in ideal circumstances, and you start trying to apply that drug or that treatment in a patient population that's older, more frail, more unable to tolerate the adverse events, and you very easily can take a minimally or marginally effective drug and tip over into a drug that essentially has no net benefit, um, that may even add toxicity and harm, but may not result in the tumor shrinkage or reduction in tumor growth rate that you would hope, and may not ultimately improve the lives of patients who take it. So I think that's the backdrop to this commentary. I think Booth and Detsky recognize that this very likely to be happening. And here, what they want to tackle is why do we so often persist? Why do we so often do these things that we very likely doubt will be anything better than minimally effective and maybe worse than that? Okay, so they actually outline a few factors. Um, they talk about patients, the media, the physician, the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm going to add two of my own. I'm going to add patient advocates and drug regulators. So let me take you through what they write. First, patients. So I think from the perspective of psychology, from the perspective of some of the work by Kahneman on prospect theory, they approach this question. They write, 
Patients might seek treatment with therapies that provide marginal benefits because they have an incomplete understanding of their prognosis and of the potential benefits and risks of treatments. For instance, after being told that 1% of treated patients live for 10 years, many patients believe they are within that 1%. When asked about the goals of their palliative chemotherapy, they answer by saying they hope to be cured. When patients have a good understanding of their prognosis and the effects of treatment, they might still choose to pursue almost non-existent gains, driven by a desire to exert control over a situation that feels out of control, or to avoid disappointing their loved ones. This is what Booth and Detsky write. I think they are really hitting the nail on the head, um, certainly in terms of the first point, which is that patients may have an incomplete understanding of their prognosis, and they may have an incomplete understanding of the potential benefits and risks of treatment. I think so often in the haste of the doctor-patient encounter, it is so easy to say, you should do X, Y, or Z, and maybe some providers do say that without going through the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives to that. I think it's easy to imagine that one will be the person who does the best with the therapy. But of course, we should not forget that even in clinical trials where some groups of patients receive placebo, there are still some people who do really, really well. There's an outlier group in both settings suggesting that some people have a very favorable prognosis, almost irrespective of the cancer that they have. This is true in you know every clinical setting. The real question is, what is the difference in outcome? How much better do therapies make you than you otherwise would be? That's the real question. And many of these therapies offer modest to marginal benefits. So I think their point about palliative chemotherapy is a really strong point. Um, if you're undergoing palliative chemotherapy, by definition, it cannot result in cure, and yet many hope to be cured. I think we see this again in the setting of uh, stenting for stable coronary artery disease, where multiple surveys have suggested that patients often believe it will lower the rate of MI and improve mortality, when in fact we know it does neither of these two things. Um, this disconnect between what we want patients to know and what they actually do understand about the condition, about the treatment decision. This is a big problem because I believe as long as this disconnect exists, you're really not providing someone with the autonomy they deserve. Um, in order to have shared decision-making, to have autonomy, we have to be very, very clear about the potential benefits and the certain risks of treatment and whether or not those are compatible with someone's best interest. Media. This is what Booth and Detsky write about the media. Media reports commonly overstate the benefits of new treatments, touted as, quote, cancer breakthroughs on a regular basis. Of note, breakthroughs extend life by one or two months at best, and more commonly, are only associated with an improvement of a surrogate endpoint. Wow. So I think, you know, they're hitting the nail on the head that, you know, two-thirds of cancer drugs that come to market are doing so solely on the basis of improvement in surrogate endpoint, which we may hope translates into improvement in quality of life or survival, but we do not yet know that to be the case. For the one-third of drugs that do improve survival or quality of life, they often do so with marginal gains one to two months, and again, in idealized patient populations, which, if anything, you're going to think are less in the real world. And yet, the narrative around these drugs is breakthroughs, that we're reaching a, quote, inflection point, which I'm going to talk about in another podcast, um, that we're speeding things up, that we're developing more and more drugs. And in fact, this week I was critical of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for tweeting something like, we're approving drugs at a breakneck pace, more and more approvals. And I made the point that, look, the sheer number of drug approvals 
is not a measure of how good a job you're doing. Because by lowering the bar and having essentially no efficacy standards at all, one can approve many, many, many chemical compounds. But are any of those beneficial drugs for patients? Who knows? And if you don't do post-marketing studies, you may never know. And that yet seems to be the state of the state of so much of regulatory affairs and seems to be something that people find acceptable. We've done some work on the media space. We've looked at, and I've mentioned this on this podcast, Miracle Game Changer Cure Revolution, these words in the media landscape in the wake of a national meeting. And what we find is that half of those drugs that are hailed with those terms have not yet been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Okay, but that's not the worst part. The worst part is 14% of those terms were used for drugs that had never been given to a human being, only mouse or cell culture. That is inexcusable. You cannot be covering mouse studies and saying there's a breakthrough on the way. Nobody cares about mouse breakthroughs. They care about breakthroughs for human beings. These studies should simply not be covered. The people who are doing this work should have the humility to know that yes, you're doing something important. You are furthering science. But no, you should not be putting out press releases because that can only distort the public understanding of science. And you are only doing it for your own narcissism, for your own desire to see your work in the press because your work is irrelevant for public policy considerations and for the public understanding of science, I believe. Um, it's one thing to talk about interesting science. You know, we've had many wonderful stories on CRISPR, um, and CRISPR has very limited medical applications as of this time, but that's fine. But it's another thing to go out there and say you have a breakthrough for breast cancer because you've, you know, cured one mouse or two mice. Um, it's inexcusable. You don't need to put out those press releases. You can just, you know, return to the laboratory, focus on your work, put out the press release when you've earned it. Okay, back to Booth and Detsky, the physician. The practice of medicine is based on a deep-rooted desire to make ill people feel better, as emphasized in the Hippocratic Oath. The standard medical practice is to respond to a patient's problem with inaction. Unsurprisingly, therefore, physicians might encourage patients to pursue treatments with minimal gains. The compassionate physician will find it difficult to stop treating the patient. Moreover, physicians are subject to the same cognitive biases as patients. The desire to do something, the sense that an error of commission is preferred to an error of omission, feelings of guilt about not being able to help the patient, and or a desire to not miss the small chance of a large benefit. It is clear that it is so much harder to tell someone there are really no good or meaningful options left than it is to merely offer more options. It avoids many difficult discussions. And human beings are an optimistic species. We are always hopeful that our new therapies will benefit the patient. So I deeply sympathize with you know this tension. I think they're articulating it very well. Um, I'm not so sure there is a good solution here. I mean, I think we do need to think better about how we train physicians in these conversations. I think we're too busy making them memorize a Krebs cycle to actually sit down with somebody, watch them, see actual patients, coach them through that process, which is what you know Adam Sifu and I talked about, what medical schools should be providing and what more and more training should be providing. And you know, as a little bit of side note, residency ideally would provide a lot more of that rather than using residence as a essentially free labor service for the hospital. Be that as it may, that's for another podcast. But I think it's clear there are these things present. We could try to chip away at it through education. They're doing a good job of articulating that. Now let's go back to, I think, some of the places where we can really make some, some substantive changes. They talk about the pharmaceutical industry next. This is Booth and Detsky. 
Pharmaceutical companies have important roles in shaping the opinions of physicians and patients. The mandate of pharmaceutical companies is to sell as much product as possible for the highest possible price. For publicly traded companies, the chief executive officer's incomes are largely dictated by share prices, which are affected by perceived future profit streams and not by the magnitude of the benefits their products provide to patients. The influence of pharmaceutical companies permeates medical education, physician thought leaders, the clinical research agenda, and practice guidelines, especially when guidelines are developed by professional societies that receive substantial funding from industry. Direct advertising to patients is exactly that, advertising aimed at increasing purchases. The pharmaceutical industry has the technical expertise and financial resources to dominate the clinical research agenda and design the majority of clinical trials, including the choice of outcomes that sound important but are often not, such as progression-free survival. Industry megatrials have the power to detect very small gains. Selective reporting of trial results and spin of marginal effects overstate the benefit of small gains. Wow. They are hitting the ball out of the park. That just nails it. You know, it's one thing to have a for-profit motive and pharmaceutical industry in the cancer drug space. We all want that. That is a good thing. That encourages innovation. That encourages efficiency in many respects because we all know that, you know, a lot of science in the absence of the for-profit motive may not be as efficient as you would hope. So we want that. But the purpose of the system is to not let that take over. It can't just be drugs for drugs sake, profit for profit's sake. It has to be we need regulation to bend the outcomes of the industry towards the best health outcomes for patients, the best drugs, the best trials agendas. We need impartial thought leaders. We don't need thought leaders who are heavily and deeply conflicted with the industry. That is a fundamental failure to lead on thought because your thoughts are heavily skewed towards the goals and desires of one group. And I think when you talk about the industry influence in oncology, it's a lot like a steak that's been soaking in a bag of soy sauce for five days in the refrigerator. And then somebody comes along and we do a study where we try to show whether or not putting an extra dash of salt on some part of the steak versus another part makes it more or less salty. We've forgotten the fact that this steak has been soaking in soy sauce for days and days. It's already pretty darn salty. And in fact, that's what the industry influences. And that's why it's often very difficult in some of these studies to show a relationship between more industry influence and perversion of interpretation or outcomes, yet nevertheless some studies have shown that, but it's difficult in part because the whole steak is soaked in soy sauce, and it's very difficult to show that a part of the steak is saltier than another part when the whole thing is very, very salty. And that's what they're talking about. The soy sauce is the professional societies, the guidelines, the thought leaders, the medical education, the CME, which is an essentially a elaborate money laundering service in many cases, direct-to-consumer advertisement, the lack of a critical approach, um, the entire idea that endpoints that were once understood to be surrogates are now in the minds of doctors. They're being Doctors are being inculcated in the idea that these endpoints are meaningful in and of themselves. I, I just, you know, I agree so much with what they're saying. I think this is the, the central problem of, of medical oncology. Here are the two things I wanted to add, patient advocates. I really get and I understand and I know that there is no one more important for patients than their advocates, patients who are advocates themselves or friends and family, loved ones who may also be advocates and some physicians um, who really do take the advocacy role. Um, but all physicians to some degree are all advocates even if we don't you know, take that role so strongly. We are advocates in our heart. Um, 
it's great to be a patient advocate. It's difficult to be a patient advocate if your advocacy group is heavily conflicted with the industry. And in a study that Matt Ebola and I did in Mayo Clinic proceedings a few years ago, we found that of 68 groups that were named by the NCCN guidelines as advocacy groups you should look at, 75% had received funding from the pharmaceutical industry with a median number of corporate sponsors of seven. Only one group explicitly stated, we do not take industry funds, and the difference between the two are people who just aren't telling you what's going on. Um, So often, patient advocacy groups seem to merely be extensions of the marketing arm of industry. And what concerns me is that I think the people who are participating in these groups, they don't always see this. They may also be unwitting pawns in this scheme. The industry group is heavily funded by the industry. They're perhaps even receiving talking points by the industry, being coached by the industry, being handpicked to go to conferences and ODACs to testify um, by the industry, receiving some sort of remuneration for that. Um, including travel reimbursements, as a paper that we published, again, in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, looking at the characteristics of public speakers at the ODAC. Um, they may feel as if they are championing the desires and interests of patients, but they may, in reality, be promoting practices that merely permit lower and lower efficacy standards, less and less regulation in the space, and that in the long run, they may be doing a grave disservice to the patients whom they wish to defend. And that, to me, is what makes it so tragic and is a deep irony in this space. And you know, we're going to put out something very soon where we try to say, What can patient advocates do to be true advocates, to really get out of the system what patients deserve? And I hope to to publish that very soon. Okay, drug regulators. This is what I, you know, have to add. Um, Work that Jeff Bien, who's the chief resident here at OHSU, and I did a few years ago, looked at conflicts among FDA medical drug reviewers. And we found that among people who leave the FDA, the predominant place they go after the FDA is either working for or consulting for the biopharmaceutical industry. So this is a potential future conflict. And I think it's known and obvious to people who work at the FDA that one of the major post-employment jobs, perhaps often a very lucrative job, a very coveted job, a nice job, is to work for a consult for the industry. Is this problematic? Well, I think people have called this the revolving door. It exists certainly in all sectors of government. It is a bit problematic because even though you may not have a conflict at the present moment while you're working as a regulator, you know that there is a high likelihood that someday you're going to sit on the other side of the table. And as long as that is the case, it is human nature to try to be amicable to try to make peace, to try to make compromises, to not be a hardliner, to not demand relentlessly for improvements in patient-centered outcomes, to not push the industry harder than they would like to be pushed. You can push a little. You just can't push a lot. You can be sharp and critical. You just can't be a pain in the ass. And that's the distinction. That's what this conflict may be resulting in. That's why I think it's an important conflict. The other conflict is, it's not a financial conflict, but the other you know, real problem is that when you're a reviewer, when you work at the agency, one of your major and vocal constituencies is the industry. They will understand when you say no. They'll understand when you say yes. They will criticize you for pushing them on a control arm or something like that. 
there's a group of people that you're seeking to defend, and that's this large group of patients in the public. You're defending those people, but they may not be vocal. They're not coming to the meetings, and they may not be equipped with the information to defend you when you need defending. So it is so easy to fall into this trap where if you want to be praised for doing a good job, that just means lowering the bar and approving more drugs because the people doing the praise are the people whom you're interacting with, who care about those interactions, and the people who want to fight for the other side of things, for better regulatory standards, for more patient-centered endpoints, for better control arms, for data that is actually applicable to the U.S. population, they are largely silent or disinterested or unaware of the situation. They're not going to pat you on the back. So simply out of the desire, the human desire to get pats on the back, you may bend, and thus we will see some degree of regulatory capture. There are a number of articles written on this space, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Okay, so putting this all together, Booth and Detsky write, ultimately playing on the emotional vulnerable state of patients who face death by presenting misleading information or consistently using loss frame messaging to promote risk-taking behaviors can lead not only to wasteful spending, but also to harm in the form of the toxicities and or quality of life costs associated with futile therapies. Wow, this is a great article. These are two very thoughtful people. They are doing a really good job of trying to articulate why they believe the psychology, the incentives are aligned in this way that we are actually chasing fool's gold so often in medical oncology. Um, I, I don't know what to say. I really think it's a great article. And I think if everyone thought about oncology the way these two people think about oncology, I would pack up a suitcase and do something else because my work would have been done. Um, it's because so many people don't think about it this way that I think there's work to be done. Next up, I'll make this very brief. This press release came out October 12th, 2018. Bristol-Myers Squibb announced Phase 3 Checkmate 331 study does not meet the primary endpoint of overall survival with Obdivo versus chemotherapy and previously treated relapsed small cell lung cancer. This was a randomized clinical trial of Obdivo versus current standard of care, which is Topotecan in this country, or Amrubicin where approved, for patients with small cell lung cancer who relapse after platinum-based therapy. It did not meet its endpoint of overall survival. The safety profile of Obdivo in this trial was consistent with that observed in previous reported monotherapy studies. Okay, that's a useless thing to say. Of course it would be. What can I say? Less than two months ago, the FDA approved nivolumab for small cell lung cancer based on uncontrolled low response rate, low as in less than 20%, I believe less than 15% response rate in the multiply relapsed and refractory setting for small cell lung cancer. That might have been okay, except the data they used to support that approval was over two years old. So if you think that data warranted approval and this drug should be sped to market, Maybe approve it two years ago, but you approve it two months ago when you know you're staring down the barrel of a phase three result makes absolutely no sense. Simply wait for the phase three result. Moreover, we already knew the Empower 133 study of atezolizumab in the frontline setting was positive. We didn't know the magnitude of benefit and was later published to be a modest, I believe off the top of my head, one to two month magnitude of benefit. It was a two-month benefit in improved median overall survival with a less than one-month benefit in improvement in PFS from the addition of atezolizumab to chemotherapy backbone in the frontline setting. So that's Empower 133. Okay, so we know IO, very modest benefit in the frontline setting, statistically significant, hopefully modestly clinically meaningful. Will it be cost-effective? Who knows? We knew this response rate data 
for two years, and the FDA gives the accelerated approval, you know, in the closing hours of a window for accelerated approval before a regular approval will preclude that. And now we have Checkmate 331, which does not meet overall survival benefits, which arguably is a post-marketing study that has failed. So the question will be, will the FDA revoke the approval of nivolumab in this setting? I don't know if they will or not, but what I do know is this is emblematic of foolish regulatory approval. If you believe the uncontrolled data warranted approval, you should have done it when it was published two years ago. If you believe randomized trials are necessary, you should have waited until October 18th when you would know that they were done and negative. I believe that randomized trials in highly lethal conditions for drugs that are not parachutes, and let's be clear, IO drugs in this space are not parachutes. They have nowhere near a 99.9999% absolute risk reduction in short-term mortality, okay? They're not a light switch, they're not a parachute, they're not intuitively obvious, they have at best a modest or marginal benefit, which means randomized trials are the only way to separate signal from noise. You must do randomized trials in these settings. Thought leaders, take note, that's that's a fact. You better write that down. Randomized trials are only precluded for parachute level practices. This is not one of them. Okay, you need a randomized trial in this space. It's a highly lethal condition. It won't take long. It's an extremely common condition. It will recruit very fast. Wait for the randomized trial. That's the way to regulate. It's not to use old data to slip through a last minute accelerated approval to eat your hat two months later. That is a foolish way to regulate. All right. Now, on that positive note, we're going to turn to the interview with Dr. Obley. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Adam Obley. He's a general internist and assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing clinician. He works at the VA, and he's also an expert on evidence-based medicine. And some of you may remember, but he was my first guest on this podcast. But that episode, like the advice I had been given, was no good. And I did a lousy job of interviewing Adam and didn't let him have a chance to speak. So I brought him back to let the man have his say. And so he graciously has accepted. When he was not gallivanting this globe, he's back here in Plenary Session HQ. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you back here. Glad to be back. In our last conversation, we talked about many, many topics. And um, you did a marvelous job. And and that episode has been downloaded thousands of times, and and you must have many fans who probably recognize you on the street for your appearances on Plenary Session. Is that the case? I, I've definitely found that evidence-based medicine is a great pathway to fame. It's a great pathway to fame and fortune. In fact, um, you, you, yeah, it really is. Um, there's nothing like asking for double-blind, sham-controlled, randomized trials to just um, get everyone really, really excited. So I wanted to have you back here. and. Um, there's so many topics I wanted to cover with you, a little bit more in depth. But the first one was something that you brought to my attention. And this is a nice little article written in JAMA Internal Medicine by David Brown and Fiona Clement. And David Brown is a, is a good friend of mine through Twitter, and he's a cardiologist here at, at WashU. And they are talking about a paper that was published by the Washington Health Alliance which is the group in charge of Washington State Medicaid. It's an alliance of the state hospital associations and physician groups and 
if I recall correctly, this was actually organized at one point um, when they were looking at um, avoidable emergency department utilization. Mm -hmm. And because of the controversy that surrounds that topic, they tried to put together a broad stakeholder group to discuss the pathway forward. And I think this group has since, after settling on some of the solutions in Washington to try to address avoidable emergency department utilization, moved on to begin looking at some issues related to low-value care, which was the focus of this paper. Low-value care. What? Tell the listeners, what do you mean by low-value care? And tell us how you contrast it with what I call no-value care. Uh, is there a distinction between the two? And, uh, and maybe what is high-value care? Sure. That's a great question. So I can't tell you that there is a single universally accepted definition of low-value care. Um, and I would actually point out that there's probably a, a raging debate about what, how to distinguish between low-value and no-value care. Mm -hmm. um, there are some who say that um, low-value care is really just care in which the benefit-to-harm ratio is not very good. Mm. Um, I think that fails to, to really address the true issue of value in care. I think that would fall into the category. If the harms outweigh the benefits of a treatment, that's no value care. That's no say. value. It's a net negative. Right. And mm -hmm. this debate about whether or not we factor cost into the determination of value, um, I, I honestly think that we have to. Um, and part of the reason that we have to factor cost in is because of the consequences of unrestrained spending um, on low value services. In, at this point, about 50%, a little over 50% of everything that we spend on healthcare in this country is publicly financed. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of that is that, that we are spending on healthcare at the expense of other important social goods, mm -hmm. um, including social goods that are potentially more important in determining people's health than healthcare services. Mm -hmm. The early socioeconomic determinants of health, early education, childhood intervention, these are things that often get the cut uh, in lieu of low value healthcare services. Correct. And even some high-value healthcare services that aren't sexy or in vogue may be um, put lower than low-value services that affect some minority of vocal people. No, that's exactly right. And potentially high-value services are crowded out by our focus on providing low-value care. Hmm. So, and a high-value care, in your mind, would be a service that, how would you put it? So uh, high-value care, and again, there's debate about this term as well. Um, there are some who would make the point, and I think this is fairly extreme, that the only high-value care is that which has a positive return on investment. I see. And quite frankly, there are very few things that we do in medicine that have a positive ROI. What about hep C treatment? That, that might be. <laughs> it, potentially. Mm. Uh, you know, interestingly, the, the studies um, on cost-effectiveness of hepatitis C, I think, made some assumptions that, um, at least from the standpoint of a payer, may not be all that um, mm. value-driven. I see. For for instance, right. the avoidance of liver transplantation. That's obviously a valid and important clinical outcome that mm -hmm. we want to have. Um, but from a payer perspective, it's not that that liver transplant is not going to happen. The transplant still happens. Mm. I see. But, and uh, But but to, to make the point, okay, so notwithstanding the, the uncertainty around whether or not it is a cost-saving intervention, sure. um, but you're willing to say that high value also includes some things that potentially have some dollar value per quality adjusted life year, but, Absolutely. but a good one. We, you know, we've really been un unable to ascertain where to draw the line mm -hmm. um, about what constitutes a cost-effective service. Many other countries have been able to do that uh, more effectively and apply it in a rational manner. Um, but yes, I think that that's ultimately how we have to look at it. Mm -hmm. But let's say one thing we'll easily agree on is that you know, good blood pressure control in people with real cardiovascular risk from very lofty hypertensive levels to 
more reasonable ones, maybe not sprint levels, but more reasonable blood pressure control, that would be a high value intervention. Sure, absolutely. That's a high value intervention. So are things like long acting reversible contraceptives, mm. using medications to improve tobacco cessation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many, many high value um, interventions that we do in healthcare. Um, it's just that we spend an inordinate amount on low value services. Well, that doesn't end in lizumab, does it? <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't end in lizumab, we're not right. going to be paying for We're that. waiting on the nicotine replacement that ends in hypertensive lizumab. That's right. And that's going to really, that's going to really be good. And okay. To yeah. me, part mm-hmm. of the importance of this article is that it follows up on, on an important um, report that came out in 2012 from the Institute of Medicine called Best Care at Lower Cost. And what did that um, report show? And they estimated that about a third of what we spend in healthcare in the United States, or $750 billion, um, is wasted. And a significant portion of that comes from unnecessary services. And I think, you know, six years on from that Institute of Medicine report, we now have this admittedly looking at a, a smaller uh, smaller area, just Washington State. Um, but it basically confirms that in the six years since that landmark Institute of Medicine report came out, we haven't really put a dent in the proportion of healthcare spending that is on low value services. Hmm. And take us through that. So this is a report, and I like how they've titled it, First, Do No Harm. Um, which actually that phrase and its uh, appearance in the Hippocratic Oath has like some historical disagreement about. Um, but it's a principle that I think, you know, generally agreed upon in medicine, right. which is that at all else, if you can't do anything else, just don't muck things up, okay? Uh, first, do no harm. Um, and here's what they looked at, 11 measures, this is the following order, that they looked to see how much they were spending on. One, too frequent cervical cancer screening. Uh, by that, they mean screening in excess of what we currently believe is the recommended amount. Correct. In excess of the USPSTF recommendations. Which is now every three years. Uh, every three to five years. Three to five, that's right. Um, it's been a while since I've been an internist. <laughs> um, preoperative baseline laboratory studies prior to low-risk surgery. Uh, I think that's something that we all agree. Uh, one sees these preoperative clinic factories uh, running all sorts of tests, uh, and then the patient's getting cataract surgery. Absolutely, for cataract surgery, you know, virtually nothing is disqualifying for cataract surgery. I see, and uh, and the surgery itself, of course, is probably a high value intervention if you value. The, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, unnecessary imaging for eye disease. Annual EKGs or cardiac screening in low risk asymptomatic individuals. Which I'm shocked to learn is still happening, but it certainly does. Hmm. Prescribing antibiotics for acute respiratory tract and ear infections. How will you get your patient satisfaction scores high if you're not allowed to do this? <laughs> so there's been actually quite a lot of work trying to understand how patients um, perceive the decision-making around antibiotic prescribing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that with a couple of different approaches, some education in clinic, and then also a sort of a contingency approach um, where you can offer antibiotics if symptoms don't improve over a certain course of time, patients are actually quite satisfied with that. And the natural history of this means that most patients will, their symptoms will improve and they won't end up needing an antibiotic prescription. I see, so you're saying that, um, you know, if it's giving antibiotic or appearing dismissive, of course giving an antibiotic is gonna win, but if it's giving an antibiotic or actually doing something where you take someone through the thought process and you, you have a contingency plan, people feel good about that. Exactly. Nice. Um, PSA screening. Well, that's an interesting one. And I think the emphasis here is that um, PSA screening needs to be done in the setting of shared decision making. And Washington State actually has done some very interesting work um, through the state in validating decision aids and encouraging their use among providers. Um, and this is certainly one where, um, given the debate about the va- value of PSA, um, screening that a shared decision-making approach is appropriate. 
I watched a lot of people engage in that shared decision-making of PSA screening, and um, many of the people I've observed many years ago, the decision discussion went a little bit like this. Okay, now go over there and get your blood draw. Is that a appropriate discussion if that was the entirety of the shared decision-making? Go over there and get your blood draw. No, that would not meet even the barest standards of a shared decision-making discussion. And hopefully the presence of high-quality decision aids now mm-hmm. um, and actually training residents to use these shared decision-making tools means that it will be higher quality than what you've witnessed in the past. And that is one thing that I think what irritates me about the screening debates is that people are not honest about how not that very long ago, because I haven't been in this business that many years, but not that long ago, there wasn't anything like shared decision-making. It was just arm-twisting until patients participated in mass screening campaigns. Um, And people didn't mention things like, hey, by the way, there is no credible evidence that PSA screening increases or improves all-cause mortality. Absolutely. Uh, It's for prostate cancer-specific death in one of several trials, uh, which itself had an effect in only a couple out of seven nations. But let's put that aside for now. Population-based screening for vitamin D deficiency. Isn't everyone vitamin D deficient? That's a classic thing I hear. Certainly big business here in the Northwest. Mm, Um, It is. That said, um, you know, there was a wonderful expose in the New York Times a few weeks ago about the um, almost obscene amounts of money that have gone into uh, the push for vitamin D screening at the population level and treatment. This was by Liz Zabo, who is a really incredible reporter for Kaiser Health News, and I thought that was a great article. It was. Imaging for uncomplicated low back pain in the first six weeks. Uh, the patient comes in, my back's been hurting for two days, MRI. This one can actually be one of the trickiest to tease out because there are so many uh, sort of red flag conditions mm-hmm. that could be present that can justify the use of, um, uh, of imaging at that initial visit. However, what we know from the natural history of back pain is that most cases of back pain will resolve within six weeks. And that in the absence of those red flag symptoms, um, taking sort of a watchful waiting approach, providing physical therapy, NSAIDs, um, and avoiding imaging is the best approach. I see. And so when they take this list of a few things and they look through, they find what? How much money is potentially spent on these things? Uh, it's pretty staggering. So um, they basically categorized it into three groups, uh, necessary and likely appropriate care, mm-hmm. uh, likely wasteful care, and then what they determined was wasteful. So very likely unnecessary and should not have occurred. And this was based on a sample of the uh, all-payer claims database. So this spans both public and private payers in Washington state. I see. And ultimately, what they concluded is that about 44% of individual services This was out of 1.52 million services that they audited. About 44% of those could be classified as wasteful, very likely unnecessary, and should not have occurred. And that that constituted 33% of the total budget. 33% of the budget? That is staggering. And it's also totally consistent with the findings from the IOM report. So years later, it appears we've made very little progress. Right. And honestly, I think this should be a, a subject of, of national discussion. You know, you hear people talking about the apocryphal stories from the Pentagon of the $250 hammer, the $500 toilet seat. Um, and here we have something that's on a completely different level. This would be as if every one out of three hammers that are purchased by the Pentagon is totally unnecessary. And not only that, we just don't have any idea what they cost. And it's probably more like $2,500 instead of 250 But somehow this question of efficiency in healthcare hasn't generated as much attention. That's an interesting analogy. You're right. We, we instantly are upset. 
um, we complain a great deal when we hear about hundreds of billions of dollars spent on, you know, some super jet we don't really need or uh, something padded in the federal defense budget or something like that. We don't have that visceral reaction um, to healthcare waste, although it is waste just the same. Absolutely. Um, at an individual level, what does a report like this do for your individual practice of medicine? So you wear many hats. It obviously affects your policy hat. What does it do as an individual? No, that's a great question. So I, I do think that many of the solutions to this need to be on the policy side. But um, as the authors of this brief report point out, um, there are potentially educational solutions and culture change which need to be part of the, the move away from low-value care. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they point out that this has been very poorly studied for something that's such a large problem. Um, our knowledge about how to train residents um, and actually how to change practice for those who are, are out ordering these low-value services, we know very little about it. And I think that's fair. But I wonder, are we even trying? <laughs> are, are we, uh, I guess, let's put aside medical residency training, because I think medical residency training, um, you know, I, at least internal medicine residency training, which is what I can speak to, that's a good training program, um, very broadly good training. Um, medical school training, I think, and you know, I've discussed on this podcast and l the guest that will precede you is Dr. Adam Sifu and he's talking about um, how much of the first two years is just basic science mumbo jumbo memorization. Right. Uh, and we're not teaching people to think critically about the application of medical tests. You, one of the things you do is you precept the residents. Um, that means they see patients and they present them to you. And you ridicule them in front of their peers. No, that's that's what it used to mean. But it means. So, but what do you do? What do you? How do you get the resident to start to think about this critically? Um, do you? I guess you're lucky because we're in Oregon, so you're probably starting out with people who are more inclined for this line this line of thinking. But you've spent some time at other places. Um, how how does it differ? Uh, what do you do for the the person who's just not getting it? Right. Well, practice environment certainly makes a difference, and. Um, Interestingly, I um, a few years ago reviewed a paper that was related to the use of um, statin therapy, the use of brand name statin therapy, and how that varied among residents. There was an mm. interesting correlation there that um, uh, residents who had trained in a high healthcare intensity setting, and that was based on the Dartmouth Atlas determinations, were more likely to prescribe brand name statins. Um, and that's a, a really interesting conclusion, that um, the place where you go to medical school and the culture of medical practice there seems to have important implications for how you practice during residency. Hmm. I will say, I, I think our residents that I work with um, recognize low-value care mm -hmm. when they see it. Yeah. Um, and the examples that come up over and over again in clinic are really the imaging for uncomplicated low back pain. Um, and then also the antibiotics for upper respiratory tract infections. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, the residents will acknowledge that what they're about to propose may not represent high-value care. Um, but they're having a difficult time convincing the patient of that. So I really take that as an opportunity to, to go into the room with the, with the resident um, and to try to model how to have those discussions um, and to emphasize to the patient um, what low-value care means, um, what the plan is going forward. Um, and what the potential risks of proceeding down either those diagnostic or treatment pathways would be um, independent of the, the cost of the care. I see. So the way you're putting it is that in your opinion, it's not that they don't know this is low value. They know it. They need the help on going the last mile and having that discussion and getting the patient to join them on that view and, and kind of have some patience with this. And I don't think it's just residents who struggle with that. I think mm -hmm. all physicians struggle with that. I see. 
And I agree with you. I think that that's, especially when they're pressed for time, especially when they're hurried or anxious or they not having a good day or something like that, that makes it a lot harder. Absolutely. I also think that it's important to recognize that although Washington Health Alliance has looked for the frequency of 47 low-value healthcare practices. We talked about some of the 11 most common ones. Correct. And um, the ones that drove most of this waste. Right, that drove most of the waste. There's a whole bunch of healthcare practices that probably do exist, um, to, and much of it might be low-value, that we just haven't really identified, put the flag on it, and said, this is low-value. These are 47 places where... Um, like the person looking for their keys um, under the street lamp, it's where the light is. Uh, There's a lot of darkness uh, out there, um, which is another, I think another challenge. And I guess one of the ways I sort of find myself as an oncologist is often, you know, we're in a place where there may not be high quality evidence on this question. But one of the things I, I push people for is, I want you to articulate as best you can your rationale for the way in which you wanna be performing PET scans. You wanna get PET scans on this person, let's say, every 12 weeks indefinitely. What's your rationale? What are you gonna do if the scan finds something? Um, How would the PET scan be different than had you just gotten a regular CT? How would that be different than had you just done clinical um, surveillance on this patient? Uh, You know, why is it you wanna go with this modality? What justifies that? What's your logic? Take me through your logic. I think that's a hugely important step, asking um, asking trainees, asking our colleagues to sort of spin out the scenario mm-hmm. um, when they propose a diagnostic test and understand what the consequences of that test are and how it will change management is really important. Um, the uh, l- Let me just give you an example that's not diagnostic testing, mm-hmm. but which um, reflects an inability to really think about the consequences of a question. Um, I am recently uh, doing more primary care tasks as I'm covering for a colleague who's on sabbatical, which means that I have an inbox which receives um, primary care faxes. I recently received one from a nursing home um, which was asking if, um, it, first of all, it reported that this patient had, not, had been refusing his moisturizing eye drops, and it told me the date and time of each of these refusals. Mm. Um, Guilty as charged. And then it asked me, is it okay to make this medicine PRN? And I thought to myself, what would be the consequence of checking no to that? (laughs) And do I really need to sign this? Are they going to hold the patient down and instill the eye drops? Right. So you're saying, in effect, the the medicine is already PRN. It's clear that someone didn't really think Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what the effect of an answer would be to that question. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, quite separately from wasteful services, a big portion of what the Institute of Medicine found was waste in healthcare is administrative inefficiencies. And that's a perfect example. Um, I have gained just in the last few weeks of covering an inbox again. Mm-hmm. much greater appreciation for the um, absurd amount of, of administrative nonsense um, that comes into the average primary care physician's inbox. And that, you know, you remind me of this, but I guess the one point I wanted to make, and I'm going to come back to this, the, you know, just how much we, we punish internists, um, and I think why well, I think that's like really bad. But the point I want to make is, every time you order a test, you should think, if this test is positive, what would I do? If the test is negative, what would I do? If the answer is the same for both arms, you really have to wonder, what are you ordering That's the right, test the for? the test is not helpful. Let's talk about internists. I, I find it so interesting that I think in the policy circles, there's some deep schizophrenia on this topic, and let me kind of articulate why I feel that way. One, there are the interest among people who wear the general internal medicine hat and health policy is tremendous. 
you don't have the health policy interest as much in my field. That's it's good for me because I'm an oncologist interested in health policy. I'm like one of the very few that are. Um, uh, medical, hematologist oncologist interested in health policy, I'm one of the very, very few that are. Um, cardiologist interested in health policy, I think there's a bunch. Um, orthopedic surgeons interested in health policy, I, I couldn't even name one. Um, but family medicine, internal medicine, they're a lot. Okay, that's Do you not count Tom Price? <laughs> oh, I forgot. <laughs> forgot about my favorite I suppose HHS his secretary. It's a very short-lived interest in health policy. I think you know your interest in health policy has to outweigh your interest in private commercial travel. Uh, and that's one of the keys to stay in health policy. But um, oh, Dr. Price. Um, but internists clearly are interested in health policy. Of the internists interested in health policy, I'm not sure how many patients they're seeing because some of them are doing a lot of policy and they don't appear to be seeing a lot of patients. So they may have forgotten what that part of the job is like because they're very quick to add things to the life of an internist is what I'm getting at. They want to add bureaucracy to an internist, more menus, more pop-ups, more checklists, more things to do, more, 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 more. Uh, I think they're completely lost their minds for a few reasons. One, many of the specialists are sucking down healthcare resources on interventions that have no justification, are an absolute Hail Mary pass every day. So if you want to look for problematic healthcare, you can look into some of these special specialties. And I don't want to name all the names, but over the course of this podcast, I probably will end up naming most of the names. But the specialists are, are doing a lot of a, a grave disservice in many ways by practicing very, very low quality evidence-based medicine. Um, uh, but because the policy experts are internists, they're focusing on the internists. Two, um, interest in general internal medicine, I wish it were very, very high, but I think it's something we do struggle with. And every year, you know, we see um, we see a lot of the smartest people go into general internal medicine. We also see some of the smartest people go away from it, go into the roads, the lifestyle specialties, the radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesia, germs kind of specialties. Sure. Um, I think we need to make general practice more desirable. And I don't think you make it desirable when you burden the general internist with tons of checklists and checkboxes and this kind of thing. Um, what do you think about that from somebody who thinks both policy and about internal medicine? No, I think that's exactly right. Um, I consider myself very fortunate to be able to do health policy and to also still practice. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason I'm able to do that is that I practice in such a wonderful system at the VA. My, the majority of my practice at this point is as an inpatient hospitalist um, on the teaching service. Um, so even though I am now doing a tiny bit of outpatient medicine again, um, being able to keep my hand in the actual practice of medicine as a hospitalist and then doing the health policy work, each one informs the other. Mm -hmm. um, I am, as I said, gaining an, a greater appreciation once again for the, um, for the administrative burdens that come along with being a primary care physician. Um, and I'm very pleased that, that my own professional organization, the American College of Physicians, is, um, is working at this point um, on trying to reduce that administrative burden, uh, uh, patients over paperwork initiative. Many years ago, I had a chance to spend a little bit of time in sort of a VA primary care clinic. I would remember these reminders would keep popping up. In those days, it was reminders to get the PSA screen. When are you getting the PSA screening? Then I've heard through the grapevine that now we have reminders for um, screening for depression or screening for this, or screening for that, or screening for the other, and there's just a sea of reminders. Um, 
But not all these reminders are based on level one high quality randomized trial evidence. And really, you know, kind of one thing I'd want to see is a randomized trial of whether or not building in the reminder improves outcomes. And I think you could do that if you have a, you know, universal healthcare system like a VA system. No, I think that's right. And I'll share with you one of my own personal examples of providing mm-hmm. low value care from residency, and it has to do with the reminder system. Um, I think there are potentially unintended consequences of these reminders. And the example I'll use, my, my own example, um, was a patient who was new to me um, and establishing care. And I asked him about his history of colorectal cancer screening. He said that he'd had a colonoscopy fairly recently at his outside healthcare system. But then at the end of the visit, you know, I'm going through the reminders. And it's really, I, I think most people who go into medicine really struggle with this idea of the red alarm clock in the corner. It's just, yeah. you know, we want to check the boxes. We want to make sure that we've done Right. Kind of make the red alarm clock turn green. That's how we got into medical school, Correct. by doing exactly. that for years. Every, right. Everything that we've done in, yeah. in 20 years of our lives is yeah. built toward turning that red red alarm clock green. Right. Um, so I, I went ahead and ordered a fit test for him, um, even though he gave me a good history and was able to tell me where he'd had this test done. Um, and sure enough, about the time that I got the records from his outside provider showing that he'd had a normal colonoscopy with the exception of hemorrhoids, um, I also get the FIT test back, which is positive, one oh, out gosh. of three. <laughs> or just it, positive in right, this case. Right, um, so we So are up, you obligated to do another colon? It, yes. Oh, gosh. And I feel terribly about it. But it's a perfect example of low-value care, and it's an example of... Um, how potentially the incentives created through those reminders, which are, are again, very well-intentioned. We want our patients to have colorectal cancer screening, um, but it can produce sort of perverse low-value care as a result. A colleague of mine used to love to tell um, this kind of, this little anecdote about um, one day somebody walked in the emergency room and this gentleman was saying that, you know, my fingers, these three fingers are feeling really numb, pins and needles. And uh, the providers examined him, did a thorough neurological exam. Nothing was revealing. Nevertheless, they were concerned. Um, MR brain, MR angiogram of the head and neck, MRA of the brain, CT scan, all these scans performed, no evidence of acute stroke, maybe some history of something had happened in the brain a long time ago. Patient says, oh, my fingers are no longer numb anymore. Uh, they're like, okay, well, I guess you're clear to go. Uh, and we're talking here about, you know, several thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars of, of, of scans. Yes. Then the patient says, um, you know, this is a very indigent person. They said, uh, you know, I just don't have um, money to take the bus home. Could I, could I borrow uh, some money? Could I have some money? And they were like, well, let's ask the social worker here. And they're like, oh, you know, we're out of bus passes for this month. And then this person ended up giving this person some money. Um, uh, because, and then to talk about this kind of paradox of healthcare that, you know, for tingly fingers in a normal neurological examination, you can get $15,000 worth of imaging, but, but you can't get a bus pass when all that is done. You can't get a bus pass or, you know, in a case like that, permanent supportive housing for mm-hmm. a homeless a person experiencing homelessness probably runs on the order of about ten dollars or $15,000 per year. Per year. So mm-hmm. for the for the cost of, of, um, of those scans, potentially could have been stably housed. Um, but I would also make the case that, you know, this, you know, potentially sounds like a case of carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> right. And I would argue that this 
individual probably escaped without having too much damage done to him by the healthcare system. Oh, because there we was could a have referred, wonderful, right, yeah. There was a wonderful example that was, uh, it, I say wonderful, but it's also quite tragic example that was published in the Washington Post several years ago that was looking at the excessive use of neurosurgical procedures in Florida. And they relate the case of an older woman who was playing tennis three or four times a week, developed some numbness in her hand, ended up being referred to a neurosurgeon who performed um, several surgeries on her cervical and lumbar spine, which left her nearly permanently disabled afterwards. Still having numbness in her hand at that point, she went and bought an $18 over-the-counter wrist brace for carpal tunnel, and the numbness in her hand resolved. Tragic. It is. It's truly tragic. I mean, that highlights one of these paradoxes I note, which is that um, if I have a drug that I believe has anti-cancer properties, and let's say I have a wealth of animal data, preclinical data, biological data, correlates, I prove that my drug hits the target, I have PKPD data, I have all this data, and I want to say I want to put my drug on the U.S. market, even though I'm very critical of the U.S. FDA, there's still a U.S. FDA, and there's still some hoops to jump through. I have to have some evidence of efficacy. Sure, that might be uncontrolled single-arm surrogate endpoint, but at least I have to do something. But if you have a, a surgery, a mechanical procedure that uses existing equipment, there is no barrier to deploying your surgery, cajoling your peers, performing you know some very shoddy retrospective case series to justify your practice, and boom, you can capture tons of market share. That's exactly right. I think that's a deep challenge about how, about you know the surgical interventions. Um, I think the other thing it highlights is that um, you know we talk about randomized data a lot, and we talk about, as evidence-based medicine, that you won't always have randomized data for everything. But one of the things that I don't think we do a good job articulating is this idea that, you know, it's nice to know an intervention works under some circumstances, and then start to wonder, will it work under if you slightly augment those circumstances? That's kind of the practice of evidence-based medicine. It's another thing entirely to have an intervention that you've never proven works under any circumstances, and now you're starting to ask, how much can I do this, or when can I do it? Right. Absolutely. And not just you know things that are unproven in the trials, but then to say, oh, but what about this group? What mm. about this group? What about this group? It's sort of the reverse of what you were describing. Right. Um, one of the reasons I think that maybe you and I might be more critical of medical technologies, um, therapies, than, than somebody who's kind of looking at medicine with a different, without our perspective, is that we know in the long run, many, many medical practices that seemed bioplausible just simply did not work. That's right. And that's something that people you know, just don't appreciate. No, that's absolutely right. And I actually think that the authors of this brief report in in JAMA Internal Medicine allude to that um, when they say that uh, it's also the the science of de-implementation, which requires in the first place that we made a mistake. If we're de-implementing, that means that we didn't have the appropriate degree of skepticism when we adopted the practice in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think listeners should know that somebody might say, like, look, but even when you do randomized trials, isn't there still some sort of error? You know, you're getting things wrong. And we're going to say, of course, that's the case. Absolutely. But, you know, the things that when you look at the things that we have to de-implement, you start to trace the history. Very often you find that it's based on a 40-person case report from one university in the hands of one provider. And you start to say, what the heck? Why were people so excited about this? This is ridiculous. 
you know, the perfect example was the uh, the report that was published in the New England Journal a few years ago that looked at the um, uncritical citation of a single letter um, that mm. made reference to the low rate of addiction that develops in patients who are treated with opioids for chronic pain. Um, and the misapplication of that, that research letter, very brief research letter in the 1980s, and its contribution to the opioid epidemic. Mm, that's a good example. Let me ask you, medical education, let's say I give you a magic wand and you can redesign the entire medical curricula. What are you going to do to it? What are you going to, what would you change? What would you keep? What do you like? What don't you like? That's a great question. Um, I think that what we need much more of um, is education about statistics and evidence-based medicine mm. um, and essentially making everyone who graduates from medical school a good critic of medicine. Um, and to some extent, that will be clinical epidemiology work, but I think it also probably involves some serious study of the, the economic drivers of healthcare in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I would definitely encourage more, more statistics, more economics, more clinical epidemiology in the medical school curriculum. And you, I think if that mm -hmm. comes at the expense of the Krebs cycle, that's fine. <laughs> I love to beat up on the Krebs cycle because I think it is a, it's emblematic of something that has almost no relevance. And I know some listeners are going to say, well, you know, there's a number of potential anti-cancer drugs that might someday take advantage of um, glycolytic pathways. It's, okay, fine. Yeah. Okay. And I know there's an IDH, IDH1 and IDH2 drug. Okay. I'm, I'm aware. Okay. But um, it's very different from saying that one factoid every single person had to learn or memorize was someday applied by one of those people. <laughs> That's not the way to justify um, the core curriculum. We have to be honest, there's a very limited opportunity we have to get somebody um, and kind of shape what they think about medicine before they become entrenched in their views. Um, that's the opportunity of medical school. And you want to pick things that the majority of people will have value from, knowing that nothing will have 100%, but nothing should be one in a million either. No, that's right. And I, I suspect there are some medical students that cringe at the thought of having more lectures in clinical epidemiology. And I don't think that's actually the optimal way to teach it. I think it's important to introduce the concept. But really, the day-to-day -day practice and the application of principles of evidence-based medicine to clinical reasoning um, should be an activity that starts at first day of medical school mm -hmm. um, and that continues through their experience on the wards. And that's what I try to do when I'm attending. Mm -hmm. um, I try to encourage them to think critically in a Bayesian fashion about the implications of the testing that they're doing, um, making it an exercise, making it contextual with the patients that they're caring for. Um, is, of course, a much better way of teaching this. And I think uh, listeners who uh, will have hear, heard Adam speak in the episode before you will kind of see a lot of similarities in how you approach it. Um, I'll give you one example. I just recently saw somebody tweet out an abstract presented at some conference that, was, that said something like, you know, patients with um, early stage lung cancer who undergo curative surgery do better, much better in terms of survival than patients with early stage lung cancer who decline all further therapy. And I said, wow, isn't that in the journal of obvious things? <laughs> um, because I think for a couple of reasons. One, you know, we can all believe that, and we all, most of us do believe, uh, you know, surgical resection of a localized solid tumor probably does have some right. advantage. But the second thing that I think we need to talk about what do you think the type of person is who is told you have a localized, curable 
lung cancer that we can do this surgery for, and um, you know we can cut it out, and you'll be very likely cured. Right. Um, what do you want to do? And, and they say, treatment. yeah, they say I don't, I don't want to do anything. Right. Yeah, I'll skip it. Pass for cholesterol treatment, or or the reason they're foregoing treatment is that the doctor says this person looks so sick and ill that I would be scared to take them for the surgical treatment, right. and maybe even so scared I wouldn't refer them for SBRT or something like that. You know, it's it's actually incredibly true, and the um, this is part of the reason in the the classic coronary drug project. Um, that helped to establish the principle of intention to treat, people who adhere to medical care, whether they're adhering to an, uh, an experimental treatment or placebo, do better. Um, so I think that probably accounts for part of what was observed here, in addition to, of course, the selection bias. In addition to selection bias. I just saw something very funny that I wasn't ready to talk about, but I just thought I had to mention. This was, this was a tweet called, um, Does Pet Ownership Cause IBS? <laughs> Not something I'd ever thought about before Professor so-and-so just showed data that IBS patients are more likely to own herbivore pets. Example, example, hamsters and horses. His hypothesis is parasitic transfer and subsequent GI inflammation. Need more research. What do you think? Um, you think that, I'll give you another example. You know, in 1680, um, people who had more servants were more likely to have gout. What do you think about that? So then therefore it must be some communicable disease. <clears throat> spread to the feudal the feudal lords clearly <laughs> clearly um, it's interesting how people construct causal webs in their mind um, that's true <laughs> I, I that said I will only own omnivore pets in the future <laughs> you will only own omnivore of course uh, and if they're but you know you could take any pet really and by not providing it proper nutrition they convert <laughs> spontaneously to omni omnivory that's true um, all right and now I wanted to ask you about residency what do you do with the bad residents? What do you do? What, are the, what about the residents? And I, you don't have to name, obviously, not, no, obviously <laughs> no, don't name no, specific no, no. people. But what do you do with, surely, as, as somebody who teaches medicine, you've got to encounter people who you feel like, it's just not clicking. I just want more out of this person. What do you do as a, as a teacher? So um, I will say that happily, I'm not involved at that level of our residency program. Um, mm -hmm. I, so you're saying wash your hands year, of the duty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 I can't comment specifically uh -huh. on, on how our program or any program um, addresses the issue of, of residents in need of remediation. Um, what I will say is a general principle and sort of how I think about it when I'm evaluating residents is, is really the extent of what I do on this front is provide evaluations. Um, is that this is part of an important covenant that we have with the public um, to ensure that folks who are going to be out there practicing medicine are capable and competent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think everyone who works in residency education takes that responsibility very seriously. Mm -hmm. And they do a very good job. And I think they do. And I think it's a, one of the biggest challenges is what to do with the, the ones that you just want more out of and how to motivate them. Let me ask you something. You're one of the few guests on this podcast who has no social media footprint. You have a real life footprint, but on social media, you're a ghost. You may not even exist. People may doubt that, you know, who is this person? Why Why aren't you? What can you tell listeners? Why aren't you on social <clears throat> media? What are you What are you doing with your life? I, I will say that the, uh, the short answer to that question, and I'll put this in um, 
clinical terms, is that I'm not sure the benefits of social media in aggregate outweigh the disadvantages. Mm, I see. And uh, what do you view as some of the disadvantages? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think some of the disadvantages are very concrete. Um, Look at the Facebook data breach from last week. Mm. Um, Not being a part of Facebook, that's one less thing for me to have to worry about. Um, On a broader scale, um, I do worry about very much about um, situations like the one that was seen in um, various communities in India over the summer, um, where basically a social media platform provided the venue for mob violence. Mm. Um, And I think we have to think carefully about those examples and try to decide whether the presence of social media, and I'm painting with a very broad brush here. I don't think that Snapchat is necessarily equivalent to Twitter or necessarily equivalent to Facebook. but I think we have to weigh the the positives and the negatives. And at this point, I, I don't have enough positives lined up for me to, to justify a social media presence. And you value your time outside of work, and you really try to take it serious. Very much. And that's what I hear from the other people I know who spend a lot of time. When they go home, they really disconnect. Do you check your email when you go home, your work-related email? Occasionally. But I try to limit it to once or twice a night. But yes, I do check email at home. I see. But, uh, but you set limits. I do. And on vacation? No, generally not. I try to intentionally find vacations where I will not be checking, where it becomes impossible to check email. Hmm. And how do you keep up with the medical literature? Good question. Um, I have some standards that I read on a regular basis. I think for me, probably the most important resource is ACP Journal Club, um, which provides nice, critically appraised Uh, versions of recently published literature. That's generally where I start, but there are several journals which I sort of look to on a regular basis. And you read them, you read them, you check them regularly? I check them regularly. I can't say that I read them cover to cover on a regular basis. I see. Nobody, yeah. I know. Anyone who says that, they're being dishonest. (laughs) Let me ask you, if you couldn't have been a general internist, what would your second choice specialty be? Does it have to be in medicine? Um. Oh, no, it doesn't. What would it, would it have been outside of medicine? Or what would it have been? Uh, that's a great question. Um, Mine would have been constitutional law because I think it's really fun to argue about that. Yeah, it's Actually, very, I seriously considered going to law school before applying to medical school. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, I've had a longstanding interest in public policy and was considering also um, working not in health policy but in education policy for a long time um, before going to medical school. Um, I think that could be very gratifying work, and I think it's um, terribly important work as well. In medicine, um, oh gosh, that's a good question. Um, I had briefly considered med-peds um, before applying that's to the same thing. medicine residency. That's the same thing, uh, Adam. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you got to do something different. No, that's right. Um, I will say, clinically, the two areas that, that appeal to me most and which I find most stimulating, uh, one is cardiology, which I end up practicing a, a good deal of general medicine cardiology, given the nature of the patients that we take care of on mm-hmm. the inpatient wards. Um, and the second is actually dermatology. Um, and I Shut think it's up. almost the, really? system, oh, yeah. the systematized approach, the uh, the importance of the sort of um, classification, the descriptive terms, um, the, the taxonomy of, of how you uh, think about rashes um, has always fascinated me. Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, I actually really have a very fondness for dermatology because I once knew someone who was just such a skilled diagnostician. Mm-hmm. This person would always be summoned in the very, very tough cases, and people would sort of talk these grand, these grand tall tales about how from the doorway this person made the diagnosis right. and just boom. No, that's exactly right. And I, I've known uh, physicians who are double-boarded in internal medicine and dermatology and um, thinking about the dermatologic manifestations of systemic diseases, um, they are some of the, the brightest and most capable diagnosticians that I've worked with. 
I have two more questions for you, then I'm going to let you go. I was listening to a lot recently about um, podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I do listen to a lot of podcasts, which is part of the reason why I actually felt compelled to take a take a stab at it. Um, but one of these podcasts was about nutrition and what the optimal diet was. And oh boy, and I was like, oh my goodness, what are they talking about? And I and I'll give you an analogy. What I felt like it was like listening to these experts talk about nutrition in 2018. Um, I felt would be like listening to cardiologists talk about heart failure in 1947. Uh, by that I mean, yeah, you have some laboratory data, you have some preclinical data, NADPH goes up if you do this, or cortisol levels go down if you do that, or insulin-like growth factor does blah, blah, blah if you do this. Okay, but you have no large-scale clinical trials that right. have laid anything down in stone. Um, and. In cardiology, before we had those trials, we had a lot of mechanistic beliefs that were absolutely put on their head. For instance, the biggest one, do you, do you use a beta blocker or a beta agonist? Right. Um, and yet, you still see this in the field of like nutrition, um, just so much. Uh, what do you think about this? Well, um, I will say that when people have asked for diet advice in the past, mm -hmm. um, my general response has been that the only well-validated diet has been the Mediterranean diet. Until. And then I would, then I would <laughs> make a caveat yeah. um, that it seems to be more effective if you live in the Mediterranean and eat that diet. I see, right. Um, which suggests to me that there are probably external features which, of the Mediterranean lifestyle other than diet which contribute to people's well-being. I can't even say that anymore, given the questions that have been raised about, about the trial climate. conduct yeah. right, um, right, right. with the with the Mediterranean diet. So, I, I think it's you know it's the proverbial wild west here. Um, anybody can make a dietary claim and point to some sort of uh, biochemical mechanistic reason that it's going to be superior. Um, on the hopeful side, I think there are some um, trials going on currently, but the problem with any good diet trial um, is that you're going to have to sacrifice some external validity to make it internally valid. I see. Mm -hmm. um, and in some of these studies where they you know, basically take a group of people and, and secret them away for 12 weeks where they're very intensely controlled what, what they're able to eat um, you know, with close monitoring, that's never going to be replicated in the real world. Yeah, and the challenge with those is also you know, short-term endpoints versus long-term sure. endpoints. You know, 12 weeks, exactly. You know, this is a topic that you know, when, when we wrote the book Ending Medical Reversal a few years ago, we tackled and we pointed out that, you know, you also will never get how many times a week should you eat kimchi? How often should you eat sushi? Where, you know, you'll never get all the studies you need. And so while we would love to see some high quality focused randomized trials of nutrition, particularly I think in high risk groups like high risk diabetics right. or heart failure, um, to answer some fundamental questions, maybe questions about sodium intake, which are still perplex us to this day. Absolutely. You just won't get those studies for every single thing, particularly for the young and the healthy who happen to be just great consumers of this kind of advice, you know, sadly. On social media. On social <laughs> there you go, on social media. And then my last question for you, um, are we winning or losing evidence-based medicine? Here's what I mean. Um, and I wonder how you think about this. How might we be winning? We're winning because, you know, we have more randomized trials in 2018 than ever before, more meta-analyses, more per year than ever before. Um, we're 
doing bigger and bigger randomized trials, better blinding, better controls, better endpoints. Well, maybe not always, but at least in some cases. We have some students who are really vocal and passionate and care about this, care about public health, care about some of these concerns, low-value care. We have a word, low-value care. didn't used to have a word for that, really. Um, how might we be losing? Um, we have just for every, you know, dubious medical practice that we finally prove doesn't really prove its worth, we're adopting four more to quickly take its place. We've got more devices and drugs coming to market through 510K and all these other broken mechanisms where there's no evidence of efficacy. Um, for every student who wants to do evidence-based medicine, we have another student who's happy to grow up to be, you know, a conflicted trialist and just parrot whatever industry press release. These are my words, of course. Industry press release they're handed before they give their drug talks at these CME conferences, which are little more than money laundered for pharmaceutical extravaganzas. Our professional organizations are uh, knee-deep in industry funding. Um, they are cherry-picking who gives the plenary, who can interpret the plenary, the post-plenary session. Um, so on, on the whole, are we winning or losing from a health policy point of view? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Uh, what do you think? Uh, is the pendulum swung one way? Will it swing the other way? How do you view this situation? No, it's a great question. Um, I think... Um you know, to some extent, historical perspective is, is necessary and that evidence-based medicine, um, as much as we'd like to believe that it's been around since the advent of, of this enterprise of medicine, um, is really only about 20 to 30 years old um, in its true application. Um, and I, I'm optimistic. Um, I think the extent to which we, um, at least at the professional level, insist on better and more complete evidence is improving. Um, but I think there are troubling signs, and I think you lay out many of the, the troubling signs that are out there. Um, I think the, um, the persistence and actually the increase in um, conflicted research is one of the most troubling ones. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, I think we need to train all physicians to be good critics of medicine, um, and I think evidence-based medicine is the right lens through which to view that criticism. Um, I, I remain hopeful, and I think um, even if it's not necessarily reflected in some of our regulatory pathways in the United States, there are certainly wonderful examples um, of other countries that have taken the principles of evidence-based medicine and really codified them mm -hmm. um, in a way that influences health policy and in a way which has addressed this very issue of low-value care. That was very well said. Dr. Adam Obley, thank you so much for coming back to the plenary session stage. My pleasure, as always. you've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.